watch a news event on TV or on online, we see the video clip of what occurs, and over the course of 30 seconds we see some newsworthy event happen, and we see and hear for ourselves. And then after the news clip ends, the uh, spin commentators come online or on TV and they try to tell you how to understand what you just saw. And after they jabber on for 30 minutes, you have no idea what you saw. Or you have no idea really what to believe about what you saw or how to understand what you saw. Because there are, well, let's face it, there are many ways to interpret uh, or to understand uh, events, life events. We have been uh, taught since birth by our parents and our peers and our educators and our government and uh, anyone else that we care to listen to or not care to listen to, uh, how, we should, how, we sh- how we should live, how we should understand, how we should uh, structure our uh, belief system in life. So when we experience, as we have today, our body and mind as we did, Uh, there are many ways that we could understand it or try to explain it to ourselves or uh, figure it out or justify it or rationalize it or uh, just put a good spin on it or to try to take off the unpleasant spin that we seem to have on it. So it is important in this uh, practice to recognize where our spin is coming from, how we're viewing the events of our life, through whose lens are we applying or are we uh, assuming or applying some understanding. So in the Buddha's uh, Noble Eightfold Path, as I mentioned uh, last evening, I think, there are you know three trainings. The training in sila, or uh, living in harmony according to the precepts. The training in samadhi, or tranquilizing the mind through the development of mindfulness. And the training in wisdom, which is the development of insight through vipassana practice. And in this wisdom uh, practice, there are two of those eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. And they are right view and right thought. So I want to speak about them a little bit tonight. Because right view... Now when the Buddha uses the word right, as in right view, right thought, right mindfulness, right energy, right concentration, right uh, wisdom, right understanding, the right that the Buddha is talking about or the way we should understand the use of the word right. It's not as some metaphysical, super right, capital letters, 
R-I-G-H-T, but rather it is and when we understand that the Buddha's whole journey of awakening was to discover the, uh, the source of suffering and the path to the end of suffering. And that was really the Buddha's kind of bottom line. That's the spin he put on everything. Or that's the lens through which he looked at and understood everything. Is this suffering, gross or subtle, does it lead to suffering? Or is this leading to or pointing towards the end of suffering? So right view would be the way of understanding that leads to the end of suffering. Wrong view would be all those misunderstandings or beliefs or hopes or assumptions that tend to lead towards more suffering. So, right view as a practice is an important piece of uh, the Buddha's path of practice, path of awakening, path of understanding how to, what suffering is, and the path to the end of suffering. So Sariputta uh, was the Buddha's uh, second, second to the Buddha in wisdom. And one time some monks were speaking about right view. And they had some questions about right view. They'd heard that it was important. So they asked Sariputta, how do we establish right view in our own heart and mind? And the Buddha, Sariputta said, well, there are two elements to establishing right view in your own mind. And the first of these is, you must hear what right view is from someone else. And the second is, based on that right view, we must practice wise attention. Okay. Well, what it means to have... The first element is to hear right view from someone else. Uh, You know, we're, we're educated... We're smart, we're, we're intelligent, we've, we've gone through the education system that's all about problem solving, how to look at problems, how to solve them, how to find our way uh, quite well, thank you very much. Uh, and yet Sariputta said, well, that's all fine and good, but uh, you can't figure out how to stop suffering unless you hear what the right view, the right understanding is from someone else. Now, this is what distinguishes a Buddha from all other beings, even other beings who, are, who, who practice and become fully awakened, is that the Buddha is one who saw for himself, understood by himself, without prior instruction, without, without having heard of this path of liberation from anyone else. And that's what makes the Buddha unique among uh, many teachers. <clears throat> so, we might think, well, how do we know? And why should we believe what the Buddha said? 
Well, we already uh, believe things that we do not or are not able to confirm for ourselves. For example, we know, we know that the sun does not go around the earth. I mean, even though it rises over there and sets over there, and a few hours later it comes over here again and goes overhead and sets over there, and if we just watch that day after day, from our direct and immediate experience, we would have to say, well, the sun seems to circle around the earth. And yet there have been those who have studied that movement and also the movements of other planetary uh, events. And they have concluded that no, the sun doesn't go around the earth. In fact, it's the earth spinning on its axis that creates the appearance of day and night. And it, in fact, is the earth that goes around the sun in the course of a year. And we have been told that and insistently. And we have read it. We've seen little pictures in the book. And we now believe it. And we've all been tested on it and we've passed the test. Even though we cannot conf- have not been able to confirm it for ourselves. I mean, unless you're an astronomer. I'm not precluding the the possibility that one of you is an astronomer astronomer that can can confirm that. But for most of us, we have have accepted this um, unbelief. This is just just a belief that we can't confirm for ourselves. So we don't have any problem, really, in accepting right view and not even being able to confirm it. But the Buddha said, now here's the right view and you can confirm it. But you'll have to do some astronomically difficult <laughs> practice to to uh, confirm it. Nevertheless, it is possible. And then the wise attention that must be developed is paying attention to our experience, not trying to overlay this right view on our experience, but being willing to acknowledge how we do understand our experience and keep looking and in time it's been my experience that in time practice leads us to confirm a lot of the right views that we hear about practice it is as if we hearing right view is like reading the map we get a map of the mind we get a map of the journey and we look it over and we say, yeah, yeah, well, that's interesting. I hope this maps up to date. I don't know. And, but when we take the journey and we go wandering around a foreign land, we will, when we arrive at different locations on the journey, we will be able to confirm, oh yeah, I saw that on the map. That's right. That, the map was right. There is this place that's like this. It's not like we have to go searching for everything on the map, but what we experience can be placed on the map. Same with the right view of Dharma and the Dharma practice, the Buddha's right view of uh, the Four Noble Truths, for example. Yeah, we practice. We will confirm for ourselves. Oh, this is a skillful way of understanding. (laughs) Meaning, understanding in this way 
reduces suffering or leads towards the end of suffering or helps us at least understand what suffering is and isn't. So when we, when we say right views, what is the right view of the Dharma? You know, I mentioned taking refuge in the Dharma the other night, but maybe didn't make it quite clear. I got some questions. The Dharma, first of all, is the teachings of the Buddha. What the Buddha taught is called the Dharma, capital D, big D, big Dharma. And when we understand that the Buddha was really pointing to the way things are, then we can see, oh, the Dharma is the way things are. And it's the way things are from a couple different perspectives. It's the way things have come to be due to causes and conditions or the cause-effect um, paradigm or principle that we, that we understand. Things happen due to causes and conditions. They don't, they don't just happen magically. They don't happen without causes and conditions being present, we may not know all the causes and conditions that give rise to this moment's experience, but we can be sure that it's not accidental. Now sometimes when we're looking at our own experience and we're suffering, we're struggling, and we, you know, we feel put upon by life, we may think, this is, this, I didn't invite this. I didn't, I didn't, you know, wish for this to happen. What did I do to, what did I do to deserve this? We may feel more victimized by uh, the unfolding of conditions than, oh, yeah, this is a natural uh, result of causes and conditions. Uh, nevertheless, uh, practice will reveal a lot of causal conditions that, well, we don't, we don't control. We don't, I mean, you know, as I mentioned last night, Sayadaw says, the mind is not yours. But, you know, you have to be responsible to deal with what comes up in the mind. We, we can't control the mind. We, we can train the mind, uh, but at any time, anything can arise anywhere in the mind. In anybody's mind. Wow. That means, well, we have to train our mind so that we're not uh, flipped out, we're not entangled in, we're not confused by what might arise outside of our immediate control. So when you say the Dharma is the way things are, or the Buddha's teachings, the Buddha points to the way things are. The way things are, or the way things have come to be, is due to lawful unfolding of causes and conditions. And so the Dharma is also pointing to our experience, our immediate experience right now. Every moment of our life is a dharma. How we feel, what we feel, what, we're, what the body's doing, what the mind is doing, how we experience it, are dharmas. The dharma of the body, the dharma of the mind. Because, well, it's the way it is. This is the way it is right now. The body's like this. It's healthy, it's diseased, it's pleasant, it's unpleasant, the mind is calm, it's agitated. It's, this is a dharma. So the Buddha's teachings point to the way, the way it is. Not as some absolute truth out there, devoid of, separate from us, but pointing to the truth in here. This is how it is in here, moment to moment. 
So we can understand from this brief review of the Dharma that everything that we experience is normal. It's natural. It's not a mistake. It's not supernatural. So we could say that we, or it, uh, this body and this mind, this functioning of the body and mind, is really just the, the laws of nature playing out. What this body goes through, the laws of nature govern how this body appears, how this mind appears. And, for example, we are biological beings. And we know from Western science the, the, the biological laws of nature. Whatever is born is going to have a certain lifestyle, life, length of life, uh, susceptible to disease, and eventually dies. This is not our fault. <laughs> it's nobody's fault. This is, this, is the, this is the way it is. This is the laws of nature. Uh, the, the unfolding of genetics and epigenetics uh, conditions on this body and mind is a given. And while we can, you know, kind of respond to those conditions, we can't really change genetics, uh, you know, naturally. So we, we inherit, we are heirs to the biological laws of nature. We're also heirs to the physical laws of nature. As I mentioned, uh, you know, the physical laws of, for example, the law of gravity. We, we don't, we didn't invent that law. We didn't, we can't escape that law. It's, it's just the way it is. And so we are heir to, and our experience is governed by these, the laws, the physical laws of nature, which include all of the chemical laws, how uh, chemicals react in, within the body, all the chemical balances and imbalances that are possible, and, and the way that food is processed in the body is, is a chemical reaction, most of which, we have, well, almost all of which we don't control. It, it happens. You know, if we had... We don't know. We know that the body works. When it works well, that's great. We know it doesn't work sometimes, and that's kind of miserable. And we can't... We don't make it work the way it works, and we can't stop it from not working when it doesn't. Okay. Well, we are just susceptible. We're heirs of. We, we live under the guidance, under the influence of, or within the context of the laws of nature. Now, Western science has studied the physical and biological laws of nature and they're pretty well articulated. We don't have any problem with that, or I should say, we study, we know, we accept. But the Buddha also discovered the laws of nature that govern the unfolding of the mind. And Western science, neuroscientists, are studying this now and getting a lot of their clues as to what to study from... uh, Buddhist monks who, who have studied and practiced and uh, suggesting to neuroscientists how they might, where they might look for uh, confirming evidence of what the Buddha taught or how the mind works. So what did the Buddha understand about the laws of nature governing the unfolding of the mind? Well, one very important comprehensive law that we... 
our heir to, and it's helpful to understand, is the nature of conditionality. This whole unfolding of the mind is due to causes and conditions. And we can see that, and we, we can see quite easily that, for example, what occurred in the past conditions how we will respond in the future. You know, we, get, we, we, we do something once, and it conditions how we'll do it again. If we do things habitually, frequently, then that habit becomes stronger and stronger. This is law of nature. So, there's many ways of understanding how the unfolding of the mind goes, and, or how it uh, unfolds, and if we practice as the Buddha points to, then we can discover for ourselves, oh, the unfolding of the mind is like this. So, I've mentioned, and some of you have heard me, me speak about this, um, the mental legacies that the Buddha pointed to. That when we're born into this world, we don't show up as a, the mind doesn't show up as a blank slate. Uh, for those of you who've had children or have seen young children, you can realize, or for those of you who've been mothers, you can realize that the personality of that young child is a parent before they're out of the womb, and certainly soon after to other people. You know, and the, the, the energetic or the kind of the, the personality, the basis of the personality of that child is, is already formed. doesn't have to wait for mom and dad to offer, offer it. It's already there. Now, where did this come from? Well, we don't really have a good explanation for that except it's pretty obvious, if you observe it, you can see that it's true. Well, the Buddha had an understanding of where that came from. And he said, this is a mental legacy from previous life. Previous, this stream of consciousness that manifests in this, in this child has uh, come into being from somewhere else. Well, maybe, how do we know? We don't know. That's not, that's not within our field of knowledge. But, you know, when you start paying attention to the mind and you start watching your own mind unfold, you can see how, even within our own lifetime, what we do conditions how, what we become, how we become. If we do skillful things, if we, do, if we practice kindness and awareness and generosity and... Uh, non-reactivity, with all of the parents, the wholesome qualities of, of mind, then these take root and they really become quite powerful in our mind. And they're, they're opposites of you know, anger and aversion and resentment and blaming and feeling victimized or entitled. That all kind of, I won't say fades away, but certainly becomes less predominant. We can see this in our own life through practice. It's not rocket science. It's almost common knowledge. And yet, there are these mental laws of nature that guide this unfolding. And some of the teachings of the Buddha are really elaborate. If you think of uh, the Four Noble Truths, these are the laws of the Dharma. Uh, it's not just a good theory or a nice uh, religion to start. It's what 
can be confirmed if we observe our own experience. Oh yeah, the Four Noble Truths are, are a skillful way of understanding experience because they, they help us understand suffering and the end of suffering and the path of practice or the way to realize the end of suffering. Oh, okay. We won't know that unless we actually do the practice. We can't confirm that unless we do the practice. But having heard that, we might, be, we might feel motivated, we might feel invited to try it out. So all of these Dharma practices that the Buddha taught, which are all the paramis, uh, practicing the precepts, practicing mindfulness as we're doing here, the development of insight, all of these develop all of these wholesome qualities of mind. So whatever you can do to develop wholesome qualities of mind, lead towards less suffering and overcoming or uprooting or diminishing those forces of mind that lead to more suffering. This is the way it is. <clears throat> so then when we get to right views of meditation practice, as you know, there's just hundreds of different kinds of meditation. We in the West have this, um, I guess you'd say, enviable uh, responsibility to sort through the hundreds of spiritual traditions, religious traditions, uh, religious practices, uh, meditations, shamanistic studies, uh, all, all kinds of cultural, spiritual, religious ways of being in the world, understanding the world, and they're all available to us. I mean, it's just more than we could ever uh, study, uh, practice, and realize for ourselves. And so that's nice to have them available, but where do you start? You know, it's like there's so many that uh, we could get lost. I mean, if, if, if any one of us just was just, just newly interested in, you know, meditation and you went online and looked up meditation, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have any idea where to begin. There's just hundreds. But the Buddha understood that uh, in the development of the mind, or in the unfolding of the mind, or in the observation of the mind, in every moment, in every moment, the mind is knowing something. Every moment, something's being known by the mind. Now, a lot of times, as we have discovered today, uh, while their mind is, as I acknowledge, kind of a perfect camcorder, it is recording everything that we've thought, seen, heard, smelled, tasted, imagined, fantasized, hoped for, wished for, denied. It's all, it's all recorded. We may not be aware of it, as we know, when we're lost in thought, we can have all kinds of fantasies running through the mind, not knowing them when they occur, but later realizing that the, that the mind had recorded them, and we can recover them. So this, this mind that is doing all this knowing is just a, a stream of consciousness that just runs forever, has been running forever. Hasn't this, nothing that we've ever experienced has escaped this mind. Your mind is never absent. We might not be aware. We, we might be absent. 
you know, in that, in that sense. But the mind is not absent. <clears throat> what we're doing here is cultivating this awareness, which is a capacity of the mind. Uh, it's like a mental muscle. And just like, you know, depending on our lifestyle, we may use more of our physical muscles or less, depending on what we do. But we can always go to the club, go to the club, footnote, at our age, when I say go to the club, we all know we go to the club to do our exercises, but in talking to the young adults at the young adult retreat this summer, going to the club for them was something altogether different. So I have to clarify, when we say going to the club to work our, you know, to work our body and develop our muscles, what I mean is doing our reps. Okay, so if we do that, we can, we can strengthen muscles that, well, we, we don't normally use, and we don't even know we have sometimes. So the same with the mind. The mind has these muscles that can be developed, these capacities that can be developed if we practice. And one of them is mindfulness. Mindfulness has the function of remembering. And you can see how, from your own experience today, how at times how weak mindfulness muscle really is. You know, when we're lost in thought. The mindfulness muscle is just not working. It has no strength. And, but yet, even after a few days of of exercising this mindfulness muscle, we can see that it becomes stronger. We can become more mindful, more continuously mindful. Just like any other muscle that you exercise, it will get stronger more. It does its work more uh, efficiently, effectively, and continuously. So mindfulness has this function of remembering, and then it has the uh, manifestation of observing, so that once we remember to recognize the present moment, to recognize is perception. Now, we go through life a lot not really recognizing what's going on. You know, I was talking to one of the groups today about uh, walking down the street. Or maybe I talked in here, walking down the street. If you ask somebody who's walking down the street, do you know you're walking down the street? They would look at you like you're nuts. Of course I know I'm walking down the street. But really they don't. They don't know that they're walking down the street empirically. They have this idea, I'm walking down the street. But actually they're not aware of the movements of the body. They're not aware of the thoughts in the mind. They're not aware of what they see or what they hear, or the fact that they're seeing and the fact that they're hearing, they're lost in you know, their to-do list and what they're going to do when they get to where they think they're going. Not really empirically, experientially aware of walking down the street. And so much of our own life is like that too. We have this idea, we have these concepts, this conventional understanding of what we're doing, and yet we don't really have the uh, awareness to experience what we're doing. So it's perception that recognizes what's actually going on. Another mental muscle. We can strengthen perception. We can strengthen the ability to clearly recognize what is being experienced. Another mental muscle. So in meditation practice, what we're the right view of meditation practice is that we are cultivating, strengthening, or developing mindfulness. 
that has the function to remember, and has the manifestation manifestation of observing. Observing, not, not visually, but observing by, as I mentioned, kind of feeling, observing, knowing, tasting, uh, becoming intimate with. Actually, the, the uh, characteristic of mindfulness is to become intimate. It touches. It, it, it doesn't just touch on the surface. It, it really gets into the experience. gets to the experience from the inside out if you will. That's what mind, That's the characteristic of mindfulness. It remembers, it observes, and it tastes from the inside out what this present moment is. That's, 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 that's a muscle in the mind that we can train, that we are training for this, this practice here. The field of our meditative awareness in mindfulness practice leading to insight is our own body and mind. We can pay attention to what's outside of us, external sense objects, uh, what we see, what we hear, things like that, but it tends to make the mind restless. And you can see for yourself, if we're paying attention to our own body and mind, that's hard enough. You know, just kind of like paying attention to what's actually going on in here. But when we pay attention to what's out there, you can know that you're seeing, you can know that you're hearing, but we tend to get entangled in and think about what we're seeing, what we're hearing. So, in the beginning, or I should say primarily, our energy is directed towards what's going on within the body and the mind, the internal uh, sense experience. Now, this is not just a uh, a matter of belief. You know, as I said, we may think, uh, I know, I did the experiment of, with a group of holding a ram out in front of you, and said, what is, what, this is called holding a ram out in front of you, but what is the actual experience of it? And it's got nothing to do with when you actually notice what this experience is of holding a ram out in front of you. It has nothing to do with muscle, gravity, shoulder, bone. <laughs> it doesn't, that what we actually feel is aching, heaviness, tingling, hardness, coolness. And it's not muscles, bones, gravity, shoulder at all. That's a conventional understanding that we have of this thing, this process. So mindfulness knows or observes the experience from the inside. Inside this thing is tightness, tingling, aching, heaviness. The Buddha gave a short discourse. It might be the shortest discourse the Buddha gave, where he said that we only ever experience six things. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, and some kind of thoughts or thinking process. That's all we ever experience. You'd think with only six things to recognize, we wouldn't have much problem. But <laughs> nevertheless, there's a, there's a lot of variety in all of those six things. But it's because we, we experience objects to be seen, objects to be heard, objects to be felt, objects to be thought about, that there's such a variety. So in this moment of 
practicing mindful awareness, we use objects, as I've indicated with my three-dimensional instruction using my hands. Objects are being known in every moment. Objects being known. If there's no object, there's no knowing. How can that be? If there's no object, what are we going to know if there's not something to be known? The definition of object is that which can be known. Now, in the moment of knowing, there can be the object which is known, which may be a sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a touch, a thought, or the process of observing itself. This mindfulness itself can be known, or I should say, awareness can be known. So we can watch, we can observe the object as sensations in the body, or we can watch the activity of the mind, awareness itself. This is called Chittanupasana, or mindfulness of mind. A lot of our practice is mindfulness of body, Kayanupasana. Kayanupasana is when we feel sensations in the body, and that's what we're aware of. Chittanupasana is when we are aware of the mind, which is happening moment to moment also. Either one. One isn't better than the other. They're both happening, and either one can be the object of our practice. So it's clear that meditation is the work of the mind. It's not what the body's doing. Whether the body's standing, lying down, whether the body's healthy or, or not healthy, whether the body is... Uh, whatever posture it's in, whatever the body's doing, uh, the mind is there. The, the body is never without the mind. So clearly it's the mind that is doing this work. And when we observe our experience, if our experience is causing us suffering, the experience, the suffering is not in the experience. The suffering is in the mind. So when we work with our mind and develop awareness and understanding through our own mind, it's in our mind that we suffer, or it's in our mind that we realize the end of suffering. As we know, conditions in life change all the time. We can't control them. There's going to be pleasant things happen to us. There's going to be unpleasant things happen to us endlessly. Nobody can have only pleasant experiences. Not possible. Nobody can always be praised and never receive any blame. No one can ever just experience gain and accumulation and... and uh, abundance without ever experiencing loss. These the, boy, the Buddha pointed to as the, the vicissitudes of life, which everyone in any position in life is going to experience. And so it's not like we're going to somehow craft our life to only experience pleasant, to only experience abundance, to only experience praise. Not possible. And so for us not to suffer with the loss uh, the blame, the uh, unpleasantness, unpleasant conditions in life, we have to develop the mind. And the development of the mind is learning how to understand these experiences, how to, how to put the Buddha's spin on these experiences and understand that these are not suffering. We don't need to suffer with this experience of loss, of unpleasantness, of blame, etc., 
Sayadaw Uttejaniya says, awareness alone is not enough. Or I should say, mindfulness alone is not enough. Because mindfulness, just this capacity to remember, to observe from the inside intimately, needs support. We can't practice mindfulness without energy, without attention, without intention, without faith or confidence, some level of interest, really. And the unfolding of the development of mindfulness is, is there are many ways to understand it. We can talk about the seven factors of awakening, the three energizing factors of uh, energy, interest, and investigation or joy. We can talk about the three tranquilizing factors of calm, concentration, equanimity, all brought to balance by the seventh factor, mindfulness. Or we can talk about the five spiritual faculties, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, and wisdom. When we have faith or we have some confidence or we have some interest even, even if we just have interest in the Dharma or interest in meditation, that can be enough to motivate us to uh, make some effort. And if we make some effort with some guidance and some instruction, we'll be a little bit mindful. A little bit of mindfulness will uh, help us to stabilize the mind, concentration. And when we stabilize them, or when the mind becomes stable, it sees and understands things more <coughs> intimately, more accurately. And this is the beginning of wisdom. When we get a taste of understanding things the way they are, we feel more confident. We have more faith. We're willing to make more effort. If we make more effort, we'll be more mindful. As we strengthen or lengthen the continuity of mindfulness, we're going to see more. The mind is going to stabilize. We're going to see and understand more. When we understand more, we'll have more faith. More confidence in the teachings of the Buddha. More confidence in our own ability to practice. And in this way, gradually, cyclically, these five faculties develop and guide the unfolding of our, our mind, our practice. It's not rocket science. It doesn't happen automatically. It's not magical. It's very logical. If you make the effort, you'll become more mindful. If you become more mindful, the mind will stabilize. You won't be so restless. Right? If you're not restless, you'll understand things as, way, as they are more accurately. And that'll give you some inspiration to keep going. This is the way we come to grow in Dharma understanding through practice. <clears throat> but this meditation, this <coughs> mindfulness, uh, as I've instructed or I've tried to instruct you, is to, to learn to observe with interest, even if what we're observing is painful or unpleasant. Now, it takes a lot of Courage takes a lot of understanding. Why should I pay attention? Why should I be interested in painful experience? Why don't I just get rid of it? Get away from it? Well, this is the understanding that we've gotten from our family, our culture, you know, the, the self-medicating society we live in. You know, it's like, you got some pain? Bury it. Get rid of it. Take a pill. 
drink, something, distract yourself. You don't have to put up with that. That's, our, that's, our, that's a lot of our conditioning. That's a lot of our training. That's a lot of our uh, cultural uh, instruction. But the Buddha said, no. Really, you know, if you, if you understand right view, there's wisdom in paying attention to painful, unpleasant conditions. And so the instruction is to try to observe all experience with interest. And it's the interest not to get rid of, not with that motivation of getting rid of, but it's with interest to understand. Mark Epstein is a um, colleague, uh, another Dharma, Dharmite, Dharmite. <laughs> and he writes about uh, psychoanalysis and Dharma, the interface between psychoanalysis and Dharma. And he has some really interesting ways of uh, understanding the Dharma or understanding psychoanalysis, actually. He writes in one of his books, as the Buddhist view, the Buddhist way of understanding, has consistently demonstrated, it is the perspective of the one who suffers that determines whether any given experience perpetuates suffering or is a vehicle for awakening, meaning the end of suffering. He goes on to say, to work something through means to change one's view. If we try instead to just change our reaction or our emotional response to something, we may achieve some short-term success, symptom relief, but we remain bound by the same force of attachment and aversion to those very feelings which we're trying to be free of. Now, let me put this in English. (laughs) Uh, What he's saying is that, you know, when we're presented with, well, the mind, suffering, we can, you know, pick a a, a suffering that you enjoyed today or didn't enjoy today, you know, some form of aversion. You know, something, something, something goes on, aversion arises in the mind, and you're just frothing, you're just steaming, you're upset, you're, you know, irritated, impatient, you're critical, judging yourself, judging others, angry, whatever it is. And, you know, why do we want, why, we don't want to pay attention to that. We'd like to get rid of it. I mean, that, that's our conditioning, isn't it? That's our, we just like get rid of it, just dump it, you know, or deny it, avoid it, minimize it, or give it away to somebody else, get angry at them. Right? And yet the Buddha said, you know, pay attention to this. We can, we can, if we have cultivated uh, loving-kindness, we can do loving, if we know how to practice loving-kindness, we can practice loving-kindness and calm down that aversion. And sometimes it's necessary. This is not bad. It's not a bad thing to do. We want to, to know how to calm down our mind that's inflamed with aversion is skillful. Loving-kindness will do the job. Or if you're caught in blaming uh, others for your or feeling victimized and you're, you're blaming others for your experience, unpleasant experience, we can practice forgiveness. And forgiveness works. You can practice forgiveness and pff, calms down the blame game. And there are many other what we call antidotes, meditations that are antidotes to suffering. And they offer, depending on how skillful you are, 
they offer immediate symptom relief. Immediate. I mean, you know, relatively quickly. And yet, the source, the cause, the, the deeper roots of that suffering are still in the mind. Because they re- the, the deepest roots are from some wrong view, misunderstanding ourself, the situation, and where the suffering comes from. So to work something through, as Mark says, is to change your view. Now how do you work something through? Working something through is to really pay careful attention to the, this unpleasant experience. See how you suffer with this unpleasant experience. And as you observe that and you watch and you see how you suffer and you see the thoughts, beliefs, assumptions that allow you to suffer, in time you will change those views. Your views will change. Your assumptions, you'll drop those assumptions. You'll see through those assumptions. You'll see through those hopes, that cultural condition, that conditioning of the family, whatever it is. And you'll see, you know, that that's not a skillful way of understanding this. And we work it through to come to another understanding. The right view, as we heard from the Buddha, for example. And then we see, oh... With this understanding of this experience, we stop suffering. We stop suffering due to changing our understanding of what's going on. We don't change what's going on. What's going on is going on. A lot of it we don't control. You know, somebody comes up and they're in your face. You can't control that. But how you respond or how you understand that, or how you understand your response to that, you can do something about That's where we're changing our views. That's what it means to work something through. Not by thinking. Some thinking, it'll happen. It will happen, it'll be apparent to you through thought. But those thoughts come through insight. If we see, oh, this is the way it is, this is how we're suffering, this is how I'm caught in this sense of self that's suffering, then we see what we have to let go of. And we let go. And when we do that, we stop suffering. That person can still be in your face, but you stop suffering. This is what it means to work something through. And in the, in, in the practice we're doing, we work it through by paying attention carefully, and under, our understanding or our misunderstandings change through insight. Suffering or wisdom, as I mentioned previously, is in the awareness, not in the object, not in the experience. If we suffer, it's not, it's not they make me suffer. It's in our own mind that we suffer. There's proximate cause, there's conditions, of course, but only in our mind do we suffer. So this, as I mentioned last night, and I'll mention again, that liberation, when we talk about liberation, we talk about freedom, we're talking about freedom from suffering, the end of suffering, the sure heart's release. That's what liberation is. Okay, so when we talk about liberation, when we talk about freedom, we're talking about 
letting go of the views that cause us or allow us to suffer. And to do that, we have to, as I've just mentioned, we have to be willing to not just confront, not just endure, not to just put up with, but to actually feel unpleasantness. Willingly. Willfully opening, allowing, feeling, taking in. Because it's by doing that, we see our thoughts and beliefs, assumptions, that says, this is not okay. And in fact, it is okay to experience that. But we have these deep, deep conditioning to avoid pain. Now, I'm not saying that you should go seek pain. I'm just saying that there are beliefs and assumptions that are conditioned by avoiding pain, avoiding unpleasantness, that can only be uprooted. We can only work through that. We can only change that view if we're willing to feel the unpleasantness. Sorry. That's the way it is. I didn't make this up. (laughs) Don't blame me. (laughs) As I mentioned uh, uh, earlier, you know, to, to, um, to be caught in uh, a reactive state of mind, you know, obsessing about jealousy or depression or fear or desire, just insatiable desire. To be caught in that obsessively is like we are lost. We're just lost. We're just totally, cons- well, you know, <laughs> you don't need me to exactly give you a good example of that. But what we're doing with mindfulness practice is remembering mindfulness, remembering to recognize clearly what this is and then to observe it, to feel it from the inside. We know the words. We know the word. I feel angry. I feel jealous. I'm so obsessed. I'm, I want, 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 whatever. We know the words but it's like holding out your arm. We know the words but what's it like inside? That's the work. The work is to come out of the words and come inside to what this actually feels like. Because then we see, oh, this is not as bad as we've been told. It's unpleasant, but we don't die. Actually, let me me correct that. The sense of ourself as being unable to bear it, that sense of self dies. Yeah, that sense of self, I I don't want to be too dramatic about that, but that sense of self, we'll see that, we'll just see. You know, there's this belief, there's this assumption in here that I can't bear it. I can't bear it. And with steadiness, stability of mind, and not because we're macho and, you know, in denial of it, but because we're soft and pliable and vulnerable and open and allowing to feel it. That's how we, that's how we see that in fact we can not just endure it, it just passes through. The sense of self that's going, no, 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 melts. 
with, you know, with faith, with confidence, with energy, with mindfulness, with the stability of mind to, to, to feel it. Now, you know what? We've all experienced... Is there anybody in the room that hasn't experienced jealousy or anger or fear or shame or humiliation? We've all experienced all of these things, right? We've all, exper- we've all experienced them, kind of, like walking down the street. I've experienced it. But really, have we felt it from inside with full willing awareness? Because that's where we, we, we will change, or the views, our mistaken views about these experiences change. That's where it happens. So I invite you, this is practice, to not run away from, not try to just get rid of, but to observe with interest, to look with interest. What, what is this? Even the most ordinary, mundane experience, as I said, we train our mind with the most ordinary, safe, benign, neither painful nor pleasant experiences like breathing in, breathing out, hearing sounds, lifting, moving, placing your foot. It sounds like boring. Yeah, well, it's boring until you realize this is training the mind. This is the training, the mind, training of the mind to remember, to recognize the present moment. So that when the biggies come up, the big sufferings come up. These events that, you know, whether they're from the past or the present or however you imagine them, and they come up and they hurt. Well, the mindfulness is there. That training of the mind is still there that can just remember to recognize this as unpleasant as it is. This is the path of insight. This is the work of wisdom. To grow in wisdom, we have to practice in this way. And it's gradual. It's not like, it's not like any of us can just go, yes! <laughs> That's not the way. The way is you know, soft and, and uh, allowing to let it in so that you can feel it. We don't have to believe the Buddha's spin. We don't have to believe the Buddha's right views. But if we hear them and practice with guidance, we will confirm the rightness of these views, meaning we will confirm that this way of understanding practice, this way of understanding suffering, is skillful because it leads to less suffering or the end of suffering. And we can confirm that for ourselves. So let's let all these words settle down or settle in for a minute or two. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.